Well, you know, every uh, religion in the world promises something. They all do. Otherwise, who would, who would give religion the time of day, right? I mean, why take all the time and, and make all the effort to follow something that promises nothing? What would be the point of that? So, of course, all religions promise something. However, there's a major difference between all of those other religions and Christianity because the followers of those other religions actually have to earn their way to those promises. They have to try and be good enough on this earth so that in the end their good deeds outweigh the bad. Uh, the ancient Egyptians believed when a person died, the personality of that individual survived death and left the tomb provided that person's corpse remained with its ka or life force, which was to be nurtured by the contents within the tomb, which is why they were buried with a lot of uh, material things. Hinduism says that the soul accumulates karma, uh, this system of cause and effect, based on the actions of each individual throughout his or her life, which ultimately determines the outcome of their eternity. Uh, in China, it is the duty of every generation to secure sons to perform rituals in order to satisfy one's ancestors in the afterlife. And so for those who die without relatives to care for them, they become beggar spirits or hungry ghosts. Uh, the Shona in South Africa are devoted to their past ancestors as well, but they believe those ancestors communicate with the living and offer advice through uh, dreams and visions, even mediums. But if one fails to heed the advice of the spirits or to neglect their ancestors, they will be punished with illness or sometimes infertility. Muslims believe that salvation comes to those whose good deeds outweigh the bad. And so in hopes of pleasing Allah enough to earn their way to heaven, they recite extra prayers, they fast, they go on pilgrimages and perform as many good works as they can in hopes of tipping the scales in their favor. All of the other religions promise something. As long as you can do enough, to deserve it. But then along came Jesus, and in one unfathomable act of love, he obliterated every religious system of this world. By dying for us, he secured a promise that we could never earn and do not deserve. He did what we could not do so that we could have what we could not otherwise obtain. Which means there is no amount of good deeds, no amount of uh, prayers, no amount of religious devotion that can save us. Only Jesus Christ can save us. And that by his grace through our faith in him. Period. That is a promise, by the way, which is exclusive uh, to Christianity. On the surface, then, it would seem that as Christians, we have no reason to bother with good deeds, right? A righteous behavior or uh, adherence to some kind of moral code because Jesus took care of all of that for us. Except the Bible plainly tells us that good deeds should be a matter of course 
for the Christian, that righteousness should be a hallmark for the follower of Christ and that we're to, to conduct our lives according to a strict moral code. So what gives? Is Christianity different than all of those other religions or not? Well, the answer is Christianity is different because living our lives by strict biblical standards is not the means to our salvation. It is the result of our salvation. It is the evidence that we have already been saved. You see, our, our salvation is not based on our behavior. It is based upon the shedding of His blood on a cross and His resurrection from the dead and His ascension back to the Father. And so because of the work that He did, we are now offered salvation by His grace through the faith that He has given us to be able to believe in Him. So that we cannot claim one shred of credit for our own salvation. We cannot boast any personal effort on our own that secured the promise God has made to his people because it is all and only because of him that we are saved. And so due to that breathtaking reality, that we are now the recipients of eternal salvation and eternal life spent in the presence of a holy and loving God. We have the ability, because of the free will that he's granted each of us, we have the ability now and the responsibility to live according to all that he has commanded us in scripture as our grateful response to his gracious gift. So you see, there is a cause and effect to our behavior on this earth as Christians, but again, it's not what our salvation is based upon. You see, that, that's the difference between Christianity and other religions. Our salvation is secure in him because of what he did, not in us because of anything we could ever do. And yet, again, our behavior still matters because he responds toward us based on our behavior toward him. James, the brother of Jesus, said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4, 8. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 7. King David said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will act, Psalm 37, 4 and 5. You see, our actions, the way we choose to live our lives, yield a response from God, not to earn our salvation, but to allow us to accomplish all that he's called us to accomplish in this life. It's, so it's not about uh, losing your salvation every time you mess up. It's about missing out on all that he's planned for you Every time you choose anything less than radical obedience to his word and to his voice. But how many people settle for far less than all that God has actually prepared for them because of the risk of radical obedience or because of the cost of radical obedience? Because there is a cost. 
We certainly see examples of that in Scripture, examples of those who missed out on what could have been. They were, they were still God's people, but they never fulfilled all that they could have had they committed themselves to a life of radical obedience, okay? Doing it your own way will only get you so far. Doing it God's way will get you farther than anything you could ever dream up on your own. But that very much depends upon the choices that we make in this life. So ask yourself, how far do I really want to go? How much do I want to accomplish for God in my life? How much eternal impact do I want to have in the lives of others? Because God will take you infinitely farther than you could ever go on your own, but that will absolutely require a radical obedience on your part. So how far do you want to go? How much desire is there really inside of you for all that he has prepared for your life? Do you want it all? Because you can have it all. If, it's a big if, if you're willing to live a life of radical obedience. In fact, I'll prove it to you. Let's turn in our Bibles together to the book of Joshua chapter 5. We'll pick up the story right where we left off as we continue our sermon series working through this book and we'll see what happens when God's people decide once and for all to live with radical obedience both to his word and to his voice. We'll begin by reading verse 1, Joshua chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you know that the Lord parted the waters of the Jordan River so the Israelites could cross over it into the promised land, the land of Canaan, much like he parted the Red Sea when they left Egypt. And so now they've made it to the other side of the river and everyone in the land knows it. Furthermore, they know how it happened. The God of the Jews had supernaturally parted the waters, which means the same God who is powerful enough to hold back a deep and fast-moving river, which was at flood stage, for an entire day while two and a half million people with all of their belongings in tow cross over the river. That same God is clearly on the side of the Israelites who, by the way, aren't entering Canaan to say hello to its inhabitants. They are on a military conquest to take possession of the land from the current tenants. And so the Amorites and Canaanites, which are just two different names, by the way, describing the same people living in different areas, they're shaking in their boots because they know what is coming. Let's keep reading verses 2 through 7. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath, Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. 
Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So the Israelites who'd come out of Egypt had all died in the wilderness, uh, save Joshua and Caleb, leaving a new generation to inherit the promised land. But this new generation was uncircumcised, which actually, uh, it actually says far more about the previous generation than it does about the current one, okay? Circumcision was a sign of divine covenantal relationship between God and his people, which he established with Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17, where all the males belonging to the Jews were to be circumcised when they were eight days old. So, so why was this current generation uh, born in the wilderness never circumcised? Well, verse 6 tells us, the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Okay, the previous generation was disobedient. They, they did not follow God's word or his voice. You understand they were still his people, and yet his purposes for them were never fully realized because of their disobedience. And so now there's an entire generation who does not carry the mark of the covenant among them. And so God says, hey, Joshua, it's time to change that. And therein lies the difference between the previous generation and this current one. It is radical obedience to God's word and to God's uh, voice. Verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So God gives a very specific command here. He doesn't merely say circumcise this generation at some point during the conquest the best way that you can. No, he says make flint knives and circumcise this generation now. Okay, well, first of all, we know from previous chapters they had 40,000 armed men among them. There were plenty of sharp metal weapons already there which could be used for circumcising, but God's instructions were very specific, make flint knives to circumcise the sons of Israel. So he wants Joshua to honor the original practice of using flint or obsidian. It was a rock that was found in abundance in biblical lands for carrying out this mass circumcision, which was an ancient ceremony uh, indeed. We have Egyptian texts all the way back to the 23rd century BC that reference mass circumcisions. We also have uh, texts from the sixth Egyptian dynasty that describe flint knives being used in circumcision. And of course, uh, if you read back in Exodus chapter four, Moses' wife Zipporah used a flint knife to circumcise their son. So this was certainly nothing new. It was an ancient practice, but it was also a very specific command to be followed. 
which on the surface at a casual reading may seem simple enough, but keep in mind there were over 600,000 men in this generation, and that's just counting those who were 20 years old and older. Can you imagine how many flint knives would have to be made to carry out this massive task? It seems perfectly reasonable for Joshua to say, hey, Lord, you know, we have all these knives and these weapons, right? How about we just use what we already have instead of collecting all of that flint and taking all the time required to make enough knives to circumcise hundreds of thousands of men? And yet there was an even greater reason for Joshua to question this command by God because they weren't on the eastern side of the Jordan River anymore. They were in Canaan now, among their enemies. They were very close to the city of Jericho, the most heavily fortified and well-defended city in all of Canaan. I mean, hey, God, you know, I get that you want everybody to be circumcised, but shouldn't we wait until after we take down Jericho? It seems a perfectly reasonable request because once all the men are circumcised, they're sitting ducks for the enemy. They can't fight until they've healed. And if there was ever a moment to question God, this would be it, right? But that's not what Joshua did. In fact, there was no questioning of God's command. There was no second guessing of God's word. There was no attempt to bargain with God. No, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And what was Joshua's response? Verse 3. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Perfect and immediate, immediate obedience. By the way, Gibeath Haraloth, the place where over half a million men were circumcised, if you, if you translate that directly from the Hebrew, that the name of that place literally means hill of the foreskins, right? Now, I'm not trying to be crude. It was such a massive undertaking, right? They named the place after what had happened there. So here they are, hundreds of thousands of men completely out of commission, unable to fight. And by the way, they didn't necessarily know at the time that all of Canaan was afraid of them. They had no way of knowing they wouldn't come under attack during the several days they couldn't fight, which would have been the perfect time for their enemies to attack them. They would be unable to prepare for battle while they were busy collecting flint and then making the knives and then healing up from this procedure. Right on the surface, what God was telling them to do at best seemed like bad timing. At worst, it seemed like a sure way of getting yourself killed, and yet they did exactly what God commanded them to do without question or hesitation. This was radical obedience to God's word and to God's voice without compromising the slightest detail. It's incredible, really, if you think about it. And so what was the outcome of all of that obedience? Let's, let's find out. Verses 8 and 9. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The name Gilgal in the ancient language is derived from a, a verb, a Hebrew verb, which literally means to roll. 
That's why God named the place Gilgal, because that is where he rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Now, now wait just a minute. Joshua says that only after they obeyed God did God say, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Seems like an odd thing to say because they left Egypt 40 years ago. They were free from Egypt for four decades. But you see, even though God had removed his people from Egypt 40 years earlier, they never removed Egypt from themselves. Not until this day when for the very first time they chose radical obedience to his word and to his voice over holding on to their past. Okay, radical obedience to God brings freedom from bondage. The Israelites left Egypt a long time ago, but Egypt never left them. They were still clinging to their past, to everything that had enslaved them. And so it wasn't until they chose obedience to God's word and to God's voice for their today that they were truly set free from their yesterday. Look, there are a lot of Christians today who, although God has set them free from their past... They refuse to let their past go. They cling to their hurts. They cling to their sin. They cling to their fear. They hold on to old ways of thinking, continuing to live in bondage to all of the things that enslaved them before. And so they miss out on all that God has for them now. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, referring to these very people in our story, this first generation that came out of Egypt, he writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. First Corinthians 10, 1 through 6. Paul says, we really need to learn from our forefathers in the wilderness that you can be set free by God and still live like you're in bondage. The truth is there are a lot of Christians today who live the very same way this first generation of Israelites did in the wilderness. They're children of God. They've been saved by grace through faith. They've been bought by the blood of Christ and their past has been washed clean removed from them as far as the east is from the west, but you wouldn't know it based on how they live today because they're still holding on to yesterday. Listen to me. Your past does not own you. In fact, your past cannot hold you. Your past does not define you. If you're a child of God, you've been delivered from your past. So why in the world do we still cling to it? Listen, you, you may be surprised to learn the inability to let go of your past actually has nothing to do with your past. On the contrary, it has everything to do with your present. You see, the key to freedom from your past 
is radical obedience in your present. People cling to the past, not because the past was so great, but because they're unwilling to be obedient to what God is calling them to now. They're afraid of the risk of obedience or the cost of obedience, so they revert back to what they know because that is often easier than obediently accepting what God is calling them to today. I'm telling you, it's common. When you talk to believers, people who are stuck in the same old patterns, seemingly unable to break free from old habits, old ways of thinking, old attitudes about their spouses or their friends or their work or their lifestyles, whatever, you will commonly find that they're quite unhappy about being stuck in those old ways of doing things or those old ways of thinking. And they will often express frustration about not being able to move on not being able to break free from the way they've been living or thinking. And yet I'm telling you, nearly every time when you talk to them about moving on from that old way of thinking, that old way of living, what that would look like, there is almost always an excuse as to why they cannot do what must be done in order to move on and finally be free from their past. It's not the past that is the problem. It is an unwillingness to be obedient to God today that is the problem, which is exactly what the first generation of Israelites were struggling with in the wilderness. They kept living in the past because they feared what obedience would cost them in the present. Okay? You're still a child of God. If, if you've truly been redeemed by Christ, if you're following him, you belong to him but I'm telling you, you can belong to him and still live in, in the past, missing out on all that he has for you in the present. Or you can belong to him while living a life of radical obedience and you will leave your past somewhere back there in the dust where it belongs. But only you can make that choice. Because the greatest obstacle you will ever face between where you are and where you need to be in this life is you. The devil cannot stop you from getting where you need to be. And God won't stop you if you're living your life radically obedient to his word and to his voice. But the truth is, we don't like to talk about obedience too much these days. Because it sounds too much to us like legalism, doesn't it? Talking about obedience makes us uncomfortable because it sounds restrictive, like, like the opposite of freedom. Obedience feels sort of like bondage to a set of rules. But you know what? Actually, the opposite is true. Think about it. Why do people end up in prison, in bondage, in chains? They end up in prison because they disobey the law. It's disobedience that brings bondage. Obedience is actually what ensures our freedom. But living a life that is radically obedient is a choice. It is a choice that only you can make, which is true, by the way, for all of us. Let's keep reading verses 10 through 12. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. 
And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. All the way back in uh, Exodus 13, 5, as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, even before they crossed the Red Sea, they were commanded to celebrate the Passover feast when they entered Canaan. And here they are, again, even before the conquest for Canaan begins, taking the time to carefully obey the word of the Lord and celebrate the Passover. And they could have easily said, you know what, Joshua, let's take the city first. Let's defeat our enemies and then we'll celebrate and it'll be quite a celebration. But that's not what God had called them to do. Their very first responsibility after being circumcised was to obey God. And that is exactly what they did by celebrating the Passover. And so they were greatly blessed. In fact, this was a turning point for Israel because from this point on it says the manna ceased as they were able to live now and live well off of the land because Canaan as mentioned in verse 6 was a land flowing with milk and honey and interestingly enough that wasn't just hyperbole it wasn't uh, just an exaggeration because we have uh, an early second millennium uh, an early 20th century BC text from an Egyptian official named Sinu who visited the land of Canaan and he wrote a description of it this way he said plentiful was its honey there was no limit to any kind of cattle in other words Canaan is flowing with milk and honey. So the obedience of the Israelites, although seemingly risky, to expose themselves first through circumcision and now by celebrating uh, the feast on the plains of Jericho before taking any military action whatsoever against Jericho, it was paying off. Yet it gets even better. Let's finish the chapter, verse 13 to the end. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I guess he did. <laughs> Joshua goes out by Jericho, probably sizing up the city now and thinking about his next move. And he sees a man standing before him with his sword drawn. Not your typical greeting from a stranger. So Joshua asks a perfectly logical question. He says, hey, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? It's really, if you, if you read it in the original Hebrew, uh, it's best understood as, are you one of us or are you one of them? To which the commander of the army of the Lord rightly answers, no. In other words, I'm neither one of yours or one of theirs. I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. Joshua falls down to worship him, probably a smart move. And he asks, what have you come here to tell me? In other words, give me my marching orders. And the commander of the army of the Lord says, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And in perfect obedience, Joshua does just that. And yet, as compelling, as gripping as this part of the story is, just based on what it says, 
What is most compelling about it is what it does not say, at least not directly, okay? The, the, the most fantastic part about this passage is the identity of the man with the sword. You see, we, we know he's the commander of the army of the Lord because uh, he says as much, and yet if that was all we had to go on, we could reasonably assume that maybe this had just been an angel uh, of the Lord, as seen in Numbers uh, 23, uh, excuse me, chapter 22 and verses 23, again in uh, uh, verse 31, First Chronicles uh, 21, 16. Uh, it, it could have been the archangel Michael, uh, which is described in Daniel 10, 13, Daniel uh, 12, 1, in Jude 9, Revelation chapter 12, I believe, verse 7. But, but we know here this is actually much more than just an angel or even just uh, the archangel Michael for several reasons. First of all, when men would fall down in Scripture and try to worship angels, the angels would stop them and warn them to only worship God. Yet here when Joshua falls down and worships the commander of the army of the Lord, he does nothing to stop Joshua from doing so. Secondly, Joshua refers to him as my Lord. And probably more than anything else, Joshua is told to take your sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing is holy. This is precisely what Moses was told when standing in the presence of God himself at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. You see, Joshua was encountering Jesus Christ himself, the commander of the army of the Lord who was with them now. I have come now, he says, and who will go before them. Joshua was experiencing the manifest presence of God himself because he had been radically obedient in every instruction, in every command, in every leading by God. Joshua was obedient at every single turn, and as a result, he was now standing in the very presence of God because radical obedience to God draws the very presence of God. Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 21. Think about what Jesus is saying here. Think about that, because we sing songs asking for more of God. We yearn for him to move in our lives. We pray and ask for him to speak to us because we long to hear his voice. We read the scriptures for comfort, uh, for guidance, for wisdom, for understanding because deep down we know how desperately we need him to show us the way, to strengthen us, to revive us, and all of that is good and all of that is right, but Jesus says what you're looking for what you're actually looking for when you sing and when you pray and when you read, that can only be found in my presence. You understand, anyone can sing worship songs to God, but without the presence and participation of the Holy Spirit, all that we're doing is making noise. Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit, that is, in the Holy Spirit, and in truth. John 4, 24. Anyone can pray, 
But without the presence and participation of the Spirit of God, our prayers are useless. Paul said the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Anyone can pick up a Bible and read it. But without the presence and participation of the Holy Spirit while we read, there is nothing to be taken from it. The Apostle Paul said, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 13. Yes, we should sing to the Lord. Yes, we should pray. Yes, we should read the Word, but without the presence and participation of the Spirit of God, we are wasting our time. Because the key to the Spirit of God actively manifesting His presence and power in our lives is not simply going through the religious motions of singing and praying and reading. No, the, the key to experiencing that manifest presence and power of God living in our lives is when we live with radical obedience. It's not simply going through the motions. That is when Jesus said he will manifest himself in us when we live radically obedient to his word and to his voice. And you know what happens when you live that way? When you begin to live with radical obedience, that is when your worship comes alive. That is when your prayers are actually effective. That is when his word transforms you because his spirit is present and participating in your life like never before. Okay? If you want more of God in your life, the answer is not more singing, more praying and more reading. At least not until there's more obedience which unfortunately is the step that most people want to skip. So instead they just sing louder and they pray harder and they read more and then they wonder why nothing is changing in their lives. Because as long as we resist living with radical obedience, I'm telling you, our singing and our praying and our reading won't accomplish anything of lasting value. This whole concept of living with radical obedience is what eluded the Israelites for all those years in the wilderness. They went through all of the religious motions the whole time. They were very religious people. But what they needed more than religion was the presence and power of God working in their lives. And yet the very key to that happening was the very thing they lacked. Obedience. They were still God's people. But that first generation in the wilderness never fulfilled all that they could have had they committed themselves to a life of radical obedience. Because doing it your own way is only going to get you so far. 
So ask yourself, how far do I really want to go in this life? How much do I really want to accomplish for God? How much eternal impact do I want to have in the lives of others? Remember what Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 7. You understand? He will take you infinitely farther than you could ever go on your own, but that will absolutely require a radical obedience on your part. So how far do you want to go? How much desire is there really inside of you for all that he's prepared for your life? Do you want it all? Because you can have it all if you're willing to live a life of radical obedience. Let's pray.